Welcome to the third season of the Remembering Ethan podcast. I'm Chris Tafoya. Of all the bands that Ethan performed with over the years, I've been the most curious about the As Is band. I remember Ethan telling me about them, sharing stories, showing me videos. And he also uh, shared with me that they were the first major band he performed with in the Phoenix music scene. And in a way, he felt as if though the band was an introduction of sorts into that scene and the beginning of his music career in Phoenix. At the beginning of this journey, one of my goals was to talk to some of the members of the band and get their perspective of Ethan in his first major band in Phoenix. After asking around and speaking to some people who knew a few of the guys from the band, I was able to set up um, conversations with two of the band's members, Kurt Fincham, who plays trumpet, and Derek Butler, who is their drummer. I had great conversations with both of those gentlemen. Today I'm talking to Kurt Fincham. I had a great talk with him. It was very interesting, and I'm excited for you to hear it. So here's my conversation with Kurt. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Kurt. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me today. My pleasure. A worthy cause. Awesome. Yeah, and it's a pleasure to meet you. Um, I have heard a little bit of you through Ethan's mom, Kathleen, because we talk sometimes and I mentioned who I'm talking with and she was very excited to know that you and I were going to be talking. I know that uh, your main instrument is a trumpet. Right. Is that the only instrument that you've ever played? Has that been your main instrument your whole life? That's really it. I mean, uh, I went to music school as a music ed major for a while. And so I studied all the instruments. Um, You have a crash course like one semester or half a semester on all of them so at one time i played all the instruments briefly but uh you know we took a couple of years of piano because every music major has to uh most of that i've forgotten so it's really just been trumpet at any kind of proficiency why the trumpet why do you think that you chose that you landed on that instrument to make as your main instrument what influenced you to choose trumpet uh well that's a Kind of a funny question and i think if you ask a lot of musicians um like especially ones who came up in public school bands uh a lot of times there's nothing magical about it and that's the case with me i remember uh they were talking to us about well you know you can either play a woodwind like a saxophone or clarinet where you um you have the piece of wood the reed buzzing to make the sound mm-hmm. And then there's the brass instruments where you you actually have to buzz your lips like the trombone and French horn. And they didn't say trumpet. And so I thought, well, okay, so I guess trumpet's not a brass instrument. So, yeah, because it sounds like buzzing your lips might be kind of tough. So I guess I'll pick trumpet. And so I picked it for completely the wrong reason. <laughs> and um, I figured it out pretty quickly, I guess, when when I first got it. So it worked out. So was it kind of like an an arranged marriage in the way that you eventually fall in love? Well, I guess so, because uh, I know a lot of people end up on certain instruments just because the band director will pressure them. You know, I need a couple more sax players, so uh, we'll take you off this movie over here, and and it works out. So, um, 
I think as the song goes, there's still time to change the road you're on. So if one instrument's not working out after a few months or a year, you can usually switch. So if it's if it's a disaster, mm -hmm. it's not a big deal to uh, if you pick the wrong one to start off with. That's what I'm saying. Sure. And a lot of people become multi-instrumentalists where they uh, play multiple instruments. So uh, even better or more complicated. Sure. So what are you up to nowadays musically? Are you still performing? Do you? Uh... I work uh, full time in uh, finance as a financial planner for a few years now. Um, but I still play about once a week. Um, a lot of uh, the top 40 cover bands like uh, Instant Classics, um, Shining Star, and um, an L.A. band, T.C. Moses, Traffic Jam. They come out from L.A. to kind of join up with some Phoenix players. Uh, so we do a lot of work at the resorts. And then occasionally I play with uh, some of the celebrity shows that come through town. Um, most recently, uh, uh, Temptations and Four Tops. And then uh, Johnny Mathis also. Wow, that's awesome. Johnny Mathis is coming up again in uh, February too. So, Very cool. Congratulations. That's awesome. Now, you had mentioned um, some pretty top-tier bands that you've performed with over the years or that currently, you know, bands that will come through, celebrity bands that come through town. Um, what are some of the what are some of your favorite shows that you've played, you know, at that caliber, you know, bands that you've played with that have left a lasting impression on you? Oh, yeah. Um, great question. I think one of the, the fun ones that I've done uh, a few times, at least back when they were together, was Heat Wave. Okay. um sure they play with the uh i don't know what the arena is called now but it was the old uh america west or u.s airways arena where the suns play uh played for them a few times the money was always kind of short for that event but uh we got to play um boogie nights and groove line and always and forever with heat wave um Ooh. we got to play with percy sledge once wow <laughs> we walked over and uh, got a chance to talk to him for a minute uh play for the manhattans and then um i think on the jazz side of things uh i played for lou rawls a couple of times wow. it was a lot of fun even though that was high pressure oh and uh, you do one rehearsal and play the gig and you don't want to mess that up yeah and um uh the smithsonian institution jazz orchestra came to town once and picked up some players actually we were down in tucson uh, that was probably, if I had to pick one gig, that's probably the best one. My favorite one, I think. What awesome experiences you've had in that in that way. That's very cool, Kurt. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. Um, the uh, I think the money with uh, the top forty bands playing the weddings and corporate events at the resorts out here. Um, the dollar per hour is probably better than the celebrity shows, but uh, with the celebrity shows. A lot of times the music is a little better so very rarely does the good music and the good money coincide on the same gig it's always a special moment when that happens sure okay and uh so you are you a native of arizona uh no i grew up near indianapolis and moved out to phoenix in 1992. okay so you, well you've been there a while you might as well be a phoenician by now uh, just about it. I've been here longer than I live in Indiana. So, yeah. So instant classic. So then, you know, my, my buddy, Mike. Yeah, Hill. I just met him for the first time. Uh, and I saw he did one of the podcasts here. 
met him for the first time uh, a couple, three, four months ago uh, with Instant Classics. He came in and just nailed it. So, uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, he's a good guy to know. You know, it's always good to know a good bass player and a good drummer. That's for sure. <laughs> you know, I guess a good place to start is how did you meet Ethan? I had joined the As Is band um, back in the fall of 93. Uh, actually, the whole horn section kind of picked up and left another band that was kind of uh, expiring. And uh, basically, it seemed like As Is band had their act together. They were more established and offered us some more money and all that. Uh, so I think we put our first gig at the Rhythm Room with uh, As Is band in September of 93. And at the time, uh, they were just kind of rotating through several bass players, uh, subbing in and out. They didn't really have a full-time bass player. And that kind of limits your repertoire because you can't really um, add new songs and things like that. So um, when the spring rolled around, we went up to uh, play the Lake Havasu. What was it? The MTV spring break party at Lake Havasu. I think that went on for two or three weeks. We were up there for maybe three days a week for a couple, three weeks. And uh, a lot of partying going on, things like that. And the bass player we were working with at the time kind of uh, over-imbibed and uh, made a real mess of the bathroom. And the, the, actually, the hotel maid actually came in and uh, left us a, uh, a note that said, I can't clean this up. You guys will have to do it. She just left the the cleaning products and the notes okay bye and uh, so anyway we <laughs> after all that we kind of said we really got to get serious about getting a new bass player um i, I kind of remember all that and they auditioned several people i wasn't there for all of them uh i know i was there for one or two and um the auditions were kind of spaced out like a couple three weeks at, apart a month apart it was real slow and um you know, trying to get the band together to rehearse was always kind of a challenge to get everybody's schedule together. Um, and then Ethan showed up one day, a uh, skinny little guy. This was this would have been like uh, the spring of um, 94. So he was 19 then. Uh, and he showed up having learned the entire first As Is album. So he knew all the material. And so he, you know, he, uh, we played all those tunes down and he was ready to go on all of them. Uh, it's, a, it's a CD called Drums Say that he had learned. And then um, they decided to throw a tune in that he didn't know, uh, which was uh, St. Thomas by Sonny Rollins, the jazz tune. And uh, he kind of faked his way through it. It was obvious that you know, he didn't know it, but I, he, uh, he got through it and at least played something coherent to uh, keep the song going. And I think they auditioned one or two other people after that. I, I don't remember all the details, but... Um, you know, we were kind of hemming and hawing and, you know, weeks went by. And then finally, I remember Derek, the drummer, said, uh, you know, what? let's just get Ethan. He knows all the material. We don't have to rehearse. I think someone else piped up and kind of said, yeah, he's kind of young. I mean, I don't know if he knows the groove or the style all that well. Like, well, he, you know, he went out, went to the trouble to uh, learn the first album. So he's definitely a go-getter. And so that was really what made the decision was that he learned that first album and showed up ready to go. So... Yeah, that's an amazing story that he uh, went and learned the whole album. Yeah, he showed up prepared, and you know, a lot of people uh, maybe wouldn't do that so much. So, but uh, I remember once we started doing uh, you know some of the Bob Marley tunes and things like that. I remember the the leader Mark Reckling recommending he go out and grab 
Marley's greatest hits just to familiarize himself with that material too. So, and what was your first impression of Ethan? Um, if not, if not at the re at the audition, you know, then soon after when he started coming around. Well, he's always enthusiastic and uh, you know happy to be there. And uh, I, from what I know, I think it was his first major gig in Phoenix um, that I'm aware of. So. Other people might be able to fill it in a little bit better, but I got the impression it was something he had his sights on for a little while. And I remember him telling me later that, uh, you know, I wondered why it took so long for everybody to get back to me on that. I wondered if you guys were, you know, talking smack about me or what. And then once I got in the band, I realized, no, that's just the way the thing is. The, the band moves so slow. Um, uh, a lot of inertia that uh, that's just the way it was. So it totally made sense afterwards. But yeah, he was always enthusiastic. Um, I remember the first rehearsal we had with him, I walked in and he had already gotten there early and was playing like a cassette recording of, um, <clears throat> I don't know who it was. I think it was some rock band he played with up in Prescott or up in, in high school or something. But um, it was not a real good recording. And um, I don't know what the music was, but um, the whole thing sounded, sounded pretty rough. Let's put it that way. I don't know what was going on, but um, <laughs> he kind of seemed to be under the impression that we were going to learn that material. And my first, I remember that my first thought was, are you kidding me? What is this? <laughs> and uh, the leader actually said, well, we'll take a look at that later. And it kind of got involved and that was that. So, yeah, but uh, that was really the first thing I remember when he was in. A lot of the people I've spoken with um, you know, they started performing with Ethan after he'd put in a lot of hours on stage. And as you know, uh, he ended up becoming a very dynamic and influential musician in the scene. But, you know, uh, you have a unique perspective on it because you were, I'm guessing that As Is was probably one of the first, you know, well-organized bands that Ethan right. was in, you know, so, so like early on in his career. Um, but did you notice a, I mean, was there a noticeable change in the energy or the dynamic of the band after he joined or once he got comfortable playing with you guys? Um, <clears throat> I think it kind of felt like the fact that we had a full-time bass player, we were kind of ready to start moving forward. So how much of that is attributed to him specifically or just the fact that we had position filled that I couldn't tell you and that's not meant as a criticism or anything just um I think it was something we've been kind of spinning our wheels for a little while and again I only been in the band for about six months at that point so um I was still pretty green and that was I had been in a rock band for about a year during 1993 up to that point so I was pretty green to that whole scene as well um just the whole rock band party atmosphere and all that stuff here I was with a, a kid from Indiana. What what the hell did I know? But um, so, but it was uh, it was nice to get to know him, and I think um, you know he brought some enthusiasm to it, and the fact that we had the position filled, um, kind of gave us uh, a little boost, you know, with morale, um, because the uh, we actually shot a a promo photo in the spring of '94, right before he joined. It's like. Uh, well, we got to get a promo photo. Well, we don't have a bass player yet. Well, we have to, what do we want to do first? And hemming and hawing. And finally, we just did the promo photo without him. 
because he we didn't have one yet. And then so it took a couple of years before we did the next one, and he was actually officially in the photo. Okay, uh, Kathleen had sent me a photo earlier today. No, that was done um, a couple of years later. It must have been in '95, uh, I think. Very cool. And now, do you remember the actual first gig that you guys played together when Ethan, after Ethan had joined the band and you rehearsed? Yeah, I don't and... remember that. I, I remember the first couple of gigs I played with the band, but not the first one that he was on. Okay, so having been in the band uh, for a couple of years at that point, they probably the gigs probably kind of mushed together. I would guess in your memories, a number of bass players came and went before him and after him. So, um, I yeah, again, I don't remember that. I could probably um, you know look up on. I do have some of my old calendars from those days, but I don't remember the actual gig. Um, it may you know maybe uh, Kathleen or. Uh, member of his family might have records of that or something, but that's not something I remember. How about a time uh, when Ethan was performing with the band? Um, is there a particular gig you can remember where maybe Ethan was, you know, coming into his playing a little bit more, or you guys really locked in in a good groove? Or was there a moment where at which you noticed that Ethan was improving and really melding in yeah, well with the um, band? And this kind of fits in well with, uh, some of the tunes that I sent over to you. Um, we were doing a tune called Balance. Uh, it was actually a cover by uh, a Boston group, Ben Scalabim. And, um, but our version was totally different than the original. And uh, it was a great tune with, you know, some great vocals and then a big dramatic guitar solo in the middle. And uh, shortly after Ethan joined, I don't know if he discussed it with the rhythm section ahead of time or it just happened. But um, after the guitar solo, um, he walked out in front of the band and kind of brought his bass down and, and cued us to all stop. And we wanted to stop time, which is uh, we play a note and we stop. And we play another note and we stop. And there's vocals going on between the notes, but it was really the perfect dramatic thing to do in that tune at that moment. And I felt like at that time, the, the, the tune really came alive. And it was a highlight for me. Um, and he also added something in the middle of the guitar solo, I think maybe eight bars into the guitar solo where he's the whole rhythm section would drop out. There'd be a break for the guitar player to play something and then they'd come back in. And it was a five beat break, which you don't hear that very often. So it was um, out for one, two, three, four, one. And then they came back in on two, which was kind of cool. And you actually hear that um, in the clip. So. I think he uh, added a lot to that tune. You know, another thing that um, people talk about was his ability to orchestrate on the stage, you know, uh, or getting guys like, from my personal experience, Ethan, when I performed with Ethan in, our, in the first project that we had together, it was uh, one of the first organized bands that I had performed with, you know, that was an actual band and, we had to fill time, so he would call songs out during gigs that I didn't know. And he had an ability to get me, like he'd just say, tell me the key of the song, and then he'd kind of guide me through it. Was he, did, were his skills to kind of like lead the group and play at all and as is, or did you guys already have a band leader that everyone would look to 
I mean, was that kind of stuff emerging in Ethan at that time? Or was he more of a sit back and kind of follow the band instead of being the leader of the band? He wasn't really a leader at the time. It was, uh, you know, Mark Reckling was the leader. Steve Strauss on percussion was kind of the co-leader. Uh, Mark tended to make most of the ultimate musical business decisions, but uh, um, lead singer Mike Bailey and also songwriter uh, singer Alan DeQuina kind of called a lot of the musical shots. Um, and when we had a rehearsal, you know, everybody would kind of chip in or, or argue or whatever as the case may be. I don't know if he stepped forward and really took control of the band at that point at all. Okay, so when you played live, it's not like anyone was calling out cues for unrehearsed uh, improvised things that you do on the spot. I mean, you guys were well rehearsed. You knew before you started the tune where the stops were and what was going to happen. So it wasn't the it wasn't like a four piece rock band where someone in the band could stop the tune if they were uh, feeling. There it. were some things we could do spontaneously and some tunes where we could go off in different directions, and you never knew quite what was going to happen. Um, uh huh. A good example is we were playing up in uh, Vegas at the Fremont Street Club, which we did uh, about once a month for a, quite a while. Um, even before the big Fremont Street experience canopy was built, um, we were we were there. We actually played the opening of that thing, I think, after Ethan left. But um, uh, there was actually two rooms there. There's a, a reggae room and a, a blues room. And we kind of split, I, you know, there were two bands playing sometimes at the same time, or I don't know if they would alternate sets. I think maybe they would alternate sets and the crowd would kind of uh, move through a tunnel or a hallway into the other room back and forth. And um, one of the bands we were playing with was um, Dread Zeppelin. Very cool. I remember them. Yeah. Yeah. We were, were uh, at one point, uh, one of the guys would say, you know, as his horns, you know, play. And we had to have a few things ready and we would play something different every time. We had four or five little licks we could play. And at one point, um, I'm a Zeppelin fan, so we had uh, played Heartbreaker a couple of times on, you know, in the in the horn section. And so when we saw the Dread Zeppelin guys off to the side of the stage, uh, we started playing Heartbreaker at that moment. And even though it was in a different key, Ethan joined in right away and caught it. And uh, it worked out real well, and the, the Zeppelin guys enjoyed that. So I kind of felt like we did something worthwhile then. But yeah, he was, you know, we were all um, kind of quick on our feet because you never knew what was going to happen in some cases. And we would play little musical pranks on each other sometimes. So uh, he was a big part of all that. Yeah, and that was another question I had too. You know, Ethan was very witty, you know, and he was real funny, and he had a, a, a very, quick personality, you know, and uh, a lot of the bands that he played in, the guys and girls will tell me how, you know, it was almost as if though he had like inside jokes with each, you know, everyone had, and it was a different form of wit that he would use, you know, when he was playing and as is, did, did he exert some of those personality traits? I mean, did he joke around a lot? Well, yeah, he was obviously a very observant guy as far as people's, works and personalities and things like that so uh -huh. um he kind of knew how to relate to people i think really well sure and um if you were hanging out with him or talking with him you know he gave you his full attention you didn't feel like he was uh had some but a, a better place to be 
or better things to be doing. That made sense. Oh, sure. And, um, Checking his watch or looking over your shoulder. Right, right. right. Um, and back in those days, we didn't have cell phones, but, um, you know, he was fully in the moment if he were hanging out with him, which was always nice. That was definitely one of the things that I noticed right away with Ethan and one of the things that I continue to love about him throughout our friendship. You know, it felt like he was there and invested in what he, I was telling him and right. really, really listening. Yeah. So you mentioned that there were other bass players after him. So how long was Ethan in as is? Um, not a hundred percent sure because I left for six months. Um, and went to Hong Kong on another gig in, uh, in the middle of 1996. And he went on a USO tour with Alan um, for about six weeks at one point. And we kind of got by with subs. And when he came back, he kind of spazed out of the band at that point. I don't know all the details, to be honest. Um, okay. But uh, I think it was sometime in uh, late 96 or early 97, I'm thinking, because he actually was the one who uh, picked me up at the airport when I got back after six months. Okay. So um, it was somewhere in that time period, 96, late 96, early 97, I think. So it would have been about two and a half years, I guess. Two and a half years. Okay. Now, you mentioned that uh, even after that, where he picked you up at the airport, that, does that mean that you guys kept in touch pretty good after he left the band? We did, yeah. He, uh, he joined Robert Street uh, after that, which was um, uh, – basically a cover band kind of leaning towards R&B and all that. Uh, Robert had been uh, uh, the road manager for Air Supply and Leader Ford and, and some other acts like that. Wow. A lot of connections. And it was a fun band. And uh, when I left, I guess it was sometime after he joined Robert, um, I joined that band, or I was actually kind of double dipping and playing both of them at the same time. Uh-huh. And... Um, so we started doing that. And so he stayed with Robert through, I think, somewhat early to mid 2000. So I worked with him pretty steadily from, um, I'd say seven years, you know, hundreds of gigs with him. Yeah. You know? Wow. Early 93 to uh, sometime in 2000. And did you, did you notice a, pro a progression? And Ethan's playing, you know, from the point where you met him and as you played all these hundreds of gigs with him, as time went on, did you notice him getting better or relating to people, the audience members better or his skills? Yeah, he always related to people uh, and the audience well. Um, and as far as uh, I'm not a bass player, so, uh, I, I, you know, the, the saying the best bass player is the one you don't notice. So, uh, uh, seriously though, I, um, it wasn't really something I was, um, probably skilled enough or observed enough to really, okay. His progression in those days. So if you didn't notice a change, I would, I would assume then that he was pretty confident from the get go. Yeah. He showed up, uh, like I said, knowing the, the first album. So, um, he knew what I was doing. I, I, I think, um, he, um, how do I say this? Sometimes he, I think a lot of musicians felt like he had a tendency to overplay a little bit at the time. Okay. And when we recorded the next as is album, 
um there were a couple of songs on that and this is the album called in another world um there's a tune in there called uh, nine lives where um it was recorded and then after the fact the producer had uh someone else come in and, and redo the bass line um but at the same time on another tune the producer replaced the drums with a drum track so he was pretty picky about some things but um I, I think maybe in those days he did have a tendency to overplay a little bit. So, sure, I could see that. Yeah, I guess when guys are younger, they try to show their feathers a little more. I would assume, right. you know. And as, as they progress through time, they learn how to be a little more humble and play with the band. And, yeah, right. Well, the funny thing is, when we first got our copies of that album, um, Ethan didn't know his bass part had been replaced on the two nine lives and he was in the room i think i i might have even been the one that put the, the album on and play it for him and the tune starts off with a and the first note is the bass kind of swooping down into it and as soon as that first note happened he went whoa that's not me <laughs> instantly and the other members of the band were thinking well he'll never know and yeah. i swear he knew it after the first note so wow was he bummed about it at all or did was he a little bit yeah a little bit oh sure yeah uh, it might have stung a little bit that things like that take place on any album though i sure. mean uh the sessions made to uh um appease you know sometimes certain egos you record something but then you bury it in the mix or uh or whatnot things like that so uh any album is, is kind of a journey and there's um trials and tribulations <laughs> and uh compromises made so well and i would imagine with a band that size i mean uh wasn't it like nine members because you have a horn section then your rhythm nine members, yeah. was there there were nine of you guys right performing right. okay and did that number always stay consistent or did you ever have like extra members that would come in from time to time or uh that was pretty consistent i mean it, it was always you know the full band or nothing they wouldn't go out with uh, uh without the horns uh, i think every now and then they'd go out with a trio or something but um i yeah i know that was the case but um eventually the bone player left and they did not replace him they just went with two horns after that okay cool and then uh so when you so what ultimately um led to you leaving the band did the band dissolve when you left or did they keep you mentioned that there were some other spin-offs and things like that that were happening yeah the uh lead singer left in the fall of 97 he had some other projects going and uh, was starting to um not be available so so he left um like in the fall of 97 and then um let me see here. And then Alan, the other singer, left in early 98. And so we did two gigs without really any singers who or guitar players who knew any of the tunes. So we were just faking everything for a while. And that was kind of unpleasant. And at that point, I'd gotten a full-time job at a music store. And uh, it seemed like Daz's band was had seen better days. So I gave notice and uh, Curry took over. And I think he's basically been with him since then. So it was a good move for him. Sure. Yeah. So that's the, the, what path did you take after that? I know you just mentioned that you started working at a music store, but um, what followed after that? 
Uh, well, let me see here. I, I worked there full time for a few years, and then um, that that ended in uh, 2001. Uh, I you know I got married about a year before that, and so um, I opened up my own lesson studio uh, where Ethan taught there for a while, uh, and that would have been from 2001 through 2008. He taught there, so he was teaching bass. Uh, at that studio in uh, East Mesa. And so I think I played my last gig with him probably in 2000 when he left the Robert Street Band. Um, but we continued to see each other weekly through about 2008 when he was teaching for me, um, coming in a couple days a week. And then uh, I didn't see him too much after that, um, just a handful of times after 2008. But we kept in touch by text and Facebook and all that stuff, and and uh, you always kind of think you got all the time in the world to get back together and hang out. Right. Yeah. Yep. And I would always think, well, I've got years and years with this guy to write some music and keep in touch and just be around him and feel his good energy. And uh, yeah, so the last gig you guys played together was in two thousand. I would say, yeah, I think that's probably true. There might have been a one-off someplace after that. Uh, I know he he left the Robert Street Band and came back to sub one more time after that. Um, I don't remember playing with him after that, though. Um, but uh, what was I going to say here? I know I saw him at the uh, like the memorial uh, concert get-together for his first wife. That would have been an early... 2017 maybe yeah i think that's about right 2016. Yeah, north scottsdale mm -hmm. you know he gave me it was good to see him here i know he was in, in pretty rough shape at the time and saw him saw his mom there um and then the next time i saw him um was, i guess it's probably about august of um 2019 he uh restaurant mexico in uh, tempe was closing down after decades uh, on Mill Avenue, great Mexican place and uh, kind of legendary, really. Everybody ate there and as is band had band meetings there and handed out paychecks there and stuff like that. Um, that was the band that kind of introduced me to that place. And um, they were finally closing down. And so I sent out a text message to everybody and said, well, why don't we get back together and have one last as is band meeting there before they close the doors. And, uh, the place was being swarmed at that point, but um, we finally figured out on a, on a day to do it. And so seven out of nine showed up. Uh, the lead singer, Mike Bailey, had passed a few years before, but uh, seven of us showed up and it was a nice little reunion. We hung out and swapped stories and it was great seeing him. And uh, I think he had just gotten remarried and seemed to be in a really good place. Uh, Got a bunch of pictures of everybody, which is nice. And then uh, we kept, at, at the end of the night, um, we were kind of talking about, you know, semi-seriously about, Ethan said, you know, there there would be a market for the as-is band. We should do something. And so we were kind of shooting around. And um, I sent him a couple text messages because I, I thought, well, that might be something fun to do. Just a handful of gigs every couple of years, something like that, just to dust it in. And... Uh, so I sent him a message on Facebook through Messenger, and I guess he, he 
he had two different pages on there, like a, an artist page and a personal page. Well, maybe it was an old one he wasn't using, but I sent him a couple messages about that and he didn't respond. I think I was on the wrong page that he didn't really use anymore. And I just kind of let the, uh, let it drop at that point. Um, because everybody's got other things to do anyway. So sure. Um, well, we, we pick it up and talk about it another time and there never was another time. Man, that would have been really cool if you guys have been able to connect again and play some more music. Yeah. You know, I did a little bit of a, of a, you know, a little bit of a deep dive into you guys before our conversation, just so I could get a sense of the music. And, you know, I spoke with Kathleen a little bit um, just to kind of pick her brain a little bit about his time in as is. And um, you guys were a really solid band. I mean, the original music was good. The horn section added a lot of really cool elements to it. The, the, you know, the reggae grooves. I mean, just real. And I loved, um, I know we'll probably talk about it at some point because it was one of the songs you sent, but I really enjoyed Full in the Rain, that Led Zeppelin cover that you guys did. You know? Yeah. So that would have been really cool if you'd have been able to get together again. Yeah, the band continued to play that even after everybody had left. Um, it was actually my idea to bring that one into the band sometime in uh, 95. Um, I was just thinking, well, big zeppelin fan i thought well that would be a fun one to do because nobody covers that one zeppelin never took it live and uh so everybody seemed to be kind of open to doing it and um uh i guess i kind of dive into a couple stories here related to that then um sure. there was a yeah there there was a club in uh scottsdale we play it a lot um and the way it worked, I think we had a, a minimum guarantee or we got the door, whichever was um, whichever was bigger. And um, what was going on was every week we play and it seemed like the place was packed. And then the club owner would say, well, you guys didn't make your make your minimum. So we're going to get your the guarantee then. But you know, if you can't hit that minimum, we're going to have to cut back the, the guarantee because it, it's just not happening. And at, at some point, uh, Ethan, shall we say, got involved with the girl at the door who collected the money. And so she knew how much was coming in. And she told him that you guys are blowing way past the, the minimum. Like I, if we were supposed to make like 800, we were bringing in like 950 at the door, something like that. And then the club owner would, um, club owner would take the cash back and then peel off a couple hundred and put it in his pocket and come back and say, well, you guys only made 700. So uh, I guess I'll give you your, your your guarantee, but you know you came up short, and so we that's kind of how we figured out they were ripping us off. I'm not going to mention the name of the club, but it was on Stetson in Scottsdale. So, but uh, anyway, um, getting back to Fool in the Rain, we we worked that one up, and uh, you know there's a guitar solo after the um, the tempo change in that tune, um, but we decided to put uh, Ethan, uh, a bass solo on that tune because he didn't really have any bass solos in that band. And so um, uh, we worked it up. And the first time we played it, um, we uh, you know, I have to give you a little bit of an aside here. Uh, if Ethan thought something was funny, like in the middle of a tune, he would he'd be playing, but he'd start jumping up and down, boing, 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 
<laughs> you know, to uh, kind of show he thought it was funny. And he'd, he'd be jumping him down out of tempo um, while still playing in tempo. And it was something he'd obviously practiced to be able to make it a, like a comedy effect. Yeah. But something funny was happening. He would do that. And uh, so anyway, we uh, uh, we actually premiered that tune uh, at a club called Craig's Place. And um, when we played that, it's time for the bass solo. We finally get there and he starts playing for the very first bass solo that he's got in the band. And a girl walks up completely clueless that he's soloing and says, uh, excuse me, do, do you guys know any Bob Marley tunes? Can you play this? Da, 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 da. And she starts babbling at him. Yeah. And he looks at it like, oh my God, she's completely ruining my soul. He starts bouncing up and down and laughing right <laughs> in her face. And, you know, the whole thing kind of fell apart there. And so his, his first solo was kind of wiped out there. So that was Craig's place. That's hilarious. Now you mentioned Craig's place. Where was that? Uh, that was on Stetson. Oddly enough. Okay. All right. Awesome. That's a hilarious story though. Yeah. yeah. There was a, there were a few times where I saw, um, and you know, being playing in bands, cover bands, myself in the bars, it, it's always amazing um, at some of the times that people choose to come up and try to talk to you. <laughs> yeah. She just, I mean, there was no stage there. You're just kind of on the floor in the corner. Uh -huh. uh, but yeah, it, you know, we, we couldn't believe it. And I'm glad he actually thought it was funny because, uh, I think if it was my first big moment in the band and someone interrupted it, I, I probably would have been upset, but uh, he thought it was hilarious. And uh, that was great. He had a good way of, of uh, having a good attitude about that kind of stuff, you know, yeah. always real positive. And well, I think he knew there was going to be more bass solos down the road. So more performances, of that tune. Sure. There were. <laughs> and I provided a, a recording of that from, uh, we played that in Casa Grande um in august of uh, 95 so um every now and then i'd record the band just to kind of see what it sounded like if we were sounding good and sure. trying to get something good on tape and so um i provided uh one of those to you and you can hear ethan's bass solo on that from way back when now that's uh the the full in the rain cover yes okay and you spoke a little bit about balance as well um what can you tell me about homegrown because I really dug that tune, too. Yeah, that's a tune written by uh, Alan DeQueen. It's an original. It's a great song. And, um, yeah, I forget exactly when he brought it in, but it must have been around 94, 95. And it really seemed like it kind of had uh, hit potential. Uh, everybody was really excited about it when Alan brought it in. And he was writing a lot of tunes in those days. Uh, very talented guy. And um, it kind of became one of our centerpiece tunes. Um, when it came time to record the album, we were kind of starting to plan on recording the next one in the summer of, um, 95, uh, Alan wanted to check out a studio in Tempe. We were kind of auditioning studios. So we checked out, uh, a place in Tempe. I forget what, what it was called or, or who it was, but uh, we recorded that one there. Uh, the original version of it with the, uh, vocal intro, the acapella intro or is Ethan called it the Acapulco intro. <laughs> and then later we finally settled on Shaitan for the album in another world. And um, when we recorded it, the producer decided to kind of rearrange it and he took the uh, Acapulco intro away. And so you have to wait longer to get to the chorus of the tune, which I think was kind of a shame. Um, but that's the one that was released. 
Um, but the one that I provided to you was the original studio recording with the original version of it, uh, which I think sounds pretty smoking good. And you can hear Ethan very clearly on that one. Yeah, the bass line's really good on it. And uh, yeah, the song is good. Yeah, and you always want to try and get to the hook as fast as you can, right? I can see why that other that other version might have been a little bit of a bummer. Yeah, uh, yeah. the original way it starts off with the hook, which is pretty nice and kind of a dramatic thing with the, the voices all starting um, four-part harmony. Uh, but that one was never released. So uh, if you want to play it uh, for the listeners, um, well, I've got a stack of tapes from that band. And so I, I went through and pulled those three out. I think they re they represent things pretty well and okay. um, feature Ethan. And it's, it's some pretty good music. So I, I think people who knew the band or who knew Ethan would be happy to uh, hear that stuff from way back in the mid-90s. Well, I was definitely interested to hear it, you know, because I hadn't heard anything you know, anything that Ethan did musically in the 90s were the only way I got, you know, that was a filter through Ethan. You know, he would talk about being an as is and um, Robert Street's name came up a couple times and he would just talk about when he first got in the scene and the bands he would play with. And I mean, he, he just adored you guys, loved you guys so much. He had nothing but positive. And he was so proud of it. He showed me mm -hmm. uh he had this old, this huge old TV in his living room and he pulled out this VHS tape one day and showed me like a, a morning news show that you guys had performed on. And Ethan, looked, oh yeah, he looked so cool. He's in the back with his long hair, big old smile, just jamming back there, putting the groove down, you know, so it was cool to hear some recordings that he did with you back from that era, you know, before I met him. Yeah. I, put, uh, I recorded some of those shows on, uh, VHS myself, and you can see a lot of it on YouTube. So if you just uh, go to YouTube and search for As Is Band, um, a lot of them come up. You know, Ethan was really good at um, giving suggestions on uh, on not necessarily making a song better, but just uh, things that would fit well in the song. Yeah. Did you observe any of that with him when he was in performing with you, either in uh, in either project that you guys played in? Yeah, I can think of a couple of examples. Um, I, I don't have any recordings of him from the uh, Robert Street band, though I think Robert's probably got a, a promo video we did. Mm -hmm. We filmed at um, the venue of Scottsdale. I think it was called uh, the Cajun House back in those days, but I don't, I don't have my copy of that anymore. But um, I remember they were trying to record um, an original tune and there was, uh, I think the, the tune came to a stop or slowed down or got quiet for a second. And they were trying to figure out how to bring it back in. And they didn't want to just do like a one, two, three slam and get back into the groove. And finally, I think Ethan came up with the idea of, well, let's go bomb, 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 and then back into it. And I thought, well, where have I heard that before? Well, it's from uh, something. And then also uh, a Jim Croce tune. It's a lick that's been used a couple times, but it fit really well right into the tune. So, Oh, you're talking uh, about something, uh, the George Harrison tune from Afterroad? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Cool. Well, we kind of uh, borrowed that line. And it's also, I think, the uh, Jim Croce tune, I Got a Name. Okay. Yeah. It's in that one, too. So, so he had the... He, he obviously would listen to a, a lot of stuff and kind of had the right uh, idea to bring it in. So uh, he helped that one out. Um, 
when we were with Robert Street, uh, you know, we'd do the uh, usual tune, twist and shout that all those cover bands do. And um, Ethan would sing that one. And uh, at one point, there'd be a little of a breakdown. And he would sing a, a surprise verse. And we never knew what he was going to sing there, but it was always something kind of customized for the bride and groom. It always got the crowd going. And I can't remember any of the specific ones he said, but it would always be something that would mention their names in the last line. And the crowd would go nuts. And it would always be a nice moment for everybody. It always amused the band because he never knew what he was going to do. Uh, it was different every time. Uh, so we, when we get to that moment, like, oh, God, what's he going to do now? <laughs> it was always funny. But there's one that I do remember. Um, it's not his best one, but I remember probably because it was kind of corny. And it was uh, New Year's Eve on the Millennium, December 31st, 1999. Uh, we played there at the Camelback Inn with Robert. And um, when we got to that point in the song, he said, let me think here. Well, I got something to say about this brand new millennium. Got no Y2K. I got a brand new Pentium. So shake it up, baby. Twist and, shake. and so that was, that was the line there. And we all kind of went, oh, God, he could come up with something better. <laughs> well, at least he got at least he got through it. No? <laughs> yeah. Found something that rhymed. <laughs> you know, that that was one of my favorite things. Performing with him and also watching him perform. Because he'd start with uh, an Eric Clapton tune or something that's got, you know, like a the same chord progression in every rock song in the world. And then he would just go off on, you know, he'd be doing Billy Ocean and Gloria or mm -hmm. uh, the sound machine and, you know, Cindy Lauper. And then he'd go into like some boy George or George Michaels and it, he'd keep it going for like a good 10 minutes. You know, it was so fun to watch him. I think it was right. on Sally that he'd start with. Yeah. I never really saw too much of his acoustic show. Things that he did, I knew he did a lot of it. I caught some YouTube versions of them later. Um, but uh, after we quit really playing together, I never really checked out uh, too much of the bands he was with, again, because you feel like you've got all the time in the world. So um, you think, well, I'll catch him next week or next month or next year. But, uh, but there is a lot of YouTube clips of him and video and cell phone footage out there, which is nice. Yeah, he really was. It really was something to see him and uh, especially he, he and Todd Miller play together, you know, and it, he was just so fun to watch and his personality and his wit and his humor. Um, and even cooler to jam with him, you know, because he'd always learn so much from him. Yeah. And that's a that's a question I like to ask people as well. But it seems from um, earlier in our conversation, you know, I would think that uh, that question might not apply as much to his time and as is, because he's already, he's coming into a band that's already been established, mm -hmm. you know, so not sure if, uh, and, and, you know, cause like, I like to ask you, you know, what influence did Ethan have on your, you know, performance or on your musical ability or the way that you look at music. I mean, is there anything like, are there, are there any long lasting impressions that you got just from being around Ethan, whether it comes to life or music? I mean, in, in general? Well, um, I kind of appreciate, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, he was, uh, 
his roommates were two trumpet players back in the 90s when we, when we were with As Is, uh, Stefan and uh, Jeff. And so <clears throat> the fact that he knew what trumpet players did and he kind of knew, understood our instruments to some extent um, meant that he knew how to kind of um, act as a go-between in a lot of ways between the rhythm section and the horn section because he knew what we needed and knew what they needed sometimes and um that was very helpful it was like he he appreciated how the horn players sometimes had to suffer in, in the loud volume because you're you know on a brass instrument you're just buzzing your lips into a uh, a metal pipe and it's hard to compete against amplified volume sometimes and so he kind of understood uh, what we had to go through on occasion Sure. Yeah. Just the different uh, dynamics in music in general, he seemed to have a really good sense of, you know, and I wonder if some of that came from him playing saxophone in middle school, you know, because no, I didn't know he played sax. Yeah, that was his first instrument. Uh, he played sax for a couple years. And then when he got up into high school, um, that's when he made the, the transition to the bass guitar. And speaking of Stefan, um, so I'm guessing that your connection to Stefan obviously is through Ethan, but mm -hmm. um, did you and Stefan ever collaborate on anything or, or, you know, get along? Cause you both, you guys both played the horn, the trumpet. I know him pretty well. Um, it, it seems like when I quit working with Ethan, you know, I think he graduated ASU and eventually moved out of town and I kind of lost touch with him because I don't know if he was on Facebook or maybe he didn't really get on very often. Mm -hmm. um, but uh Hope he's doing well, and I understand. Um, have you actually spoken with him for one of these episodes? Two, actually. <laughs> okay. Because you know, he's known Ethan since third grade, so there was just a lot of stuff to get to talk to him about. I need to go back and uh, dig more into the uh, earlier episodes of this then. So. Well, but, he's, um, he's actually going to be in the second season, so his episodes haven't aired yet. When they do, I'll make sure to reach out and let you know. Yeah, please do. Sure. Um, you know, one other little story that comes to mind for me was um, as this band, and this would have been, I think the Super Bowl was here in uh, early 96, if I remember right. And they set up like that little Super Bowl village outside the stadium. And this was Sun Devil Stadium in Tempe the first time around. Uh, and so we played several gigs there in that whole village area leading up to the Super Bowl. And I remember we did one, it was early morning, like eight to noon or something like that in January. So it was cold. There weren't a lot of people there. So we're playing for almost nobody. And the sax player had left the band. So we were down a horn player. Um, and for brass players, it's it's hard to play when it's cold. The instrument's cold and it's flat and out of tune. Your lips don't want to buzz right. So we were really struggling. And um you know, it was kind of a miserable gig, and it was one of those that I remember being miserable. Um, but uh, somebody actually filmed it, and I dug the tape out of my closet and, and uh, had that one converted. And the funny thing is, um, if you look at Ethan on the other side of the stage during that show, he's having a great time jumping up and down and having a blast and really trying to um, put on a show. And so even though the horn players were struggling and, you know, kind of borderline miserable, that doesn't mean he was miserable. Uh, he had a great time. And when you watch it from, if you don't watch it from a brass player's perspective out front, it was a great show anyway. So 
Um, and he added a lot to it. So that was uh, something that I hadn't really noticed the first time around. Yeah, he was real good at spreading good energy. Yeah, I was so busy dwelling on my own uh, discomfort that morning that I didn't know what was, or didn't realize what was going on in the rest of the band. Sure. Well, yeah, I'm learning a lot from you. I, you know, I, I've only got a couple, well, Stefan is a buddy of mine, but I haven't talked too much about horn play. And I've always loved horn sections, you know, like Tower of Power. Uh, mm -hmm. My dad got me into them at a real young age. And just, he would take me to see a lot of bands that had horn sections in them. And I've always appreciated them. But yeah, I didn't, I would assume so that when the weather's cold, it makes it difficult for you because your lips mm -hmm. get you know, and I, and that's a whole other uh, dynamic to it that I never really thought of, you know, because if you're, if it's a wind instrument and you're blowing into it, if you're not in a good temperature, I would assume it gets pretty hard on you. Yeah. You know, when you think about Ethan and, you know, just his presence just in the world or in, in your life, even though it was, you know, peripheral, it sounds like for the past few years for you guys, not like you were keeping in touch a whole lot. But is there anything in particular um, that you miss about him, just not having him around anymore? Yeah, a um, couple things. Uh, I ran into him in a parking garage, and this must have been about 10 years ago. And um, he was with his uh, girlfriend at the time, actually Norton. And um, he said, hey, I got some stuff for you. And I've been carrying, my, carrying around my car and just waiting to uh, uh, give it to you. He gave me a book on uh, something to do with the Cold War and um, with a, like a handwritten note, which I, I still have those. And then he gave me his Delcoa CD and then actually solo album. Um, those two I've actually got right in front of me here. I've still got all that stuff. So um, the fact that he actually put that stuff in his car and drove around with it for a while waiting until we actually ran into each other um, was very nice. So. He was considerate in that way, wasn't he? Yeah. And it's a good book. Um, it was kind of thoughtful. I think he may have given one to his, that same copy to his dad. So um, I think he must have thought that book would appeal to a lot of different people. So is that something that you guys related on, you know, uh, history? Not really. I think he was a history major, um, which reminds me of a little joke he once told me i guess when he finally graduated from, graduated from asu he told me uh, well i was playing in bars working my way through college now i'm just playing in bars <laughs> but um i also kind of miss uh if you know the earth wind and fire tune september i do uh, you remember the 21st night of september uh every september 21st i would uh send him something related to that tune like either i would uh text him a lyric from it, or I'd play my horn into his voicemail, like one of the trumpet parts from that tune, or send him a clip to a video of it, or, or whatever. Uh, and it was like a kind of little tradition we had going on for years and years. And uh, sadly, that is no more. So I miss that one. It's so amazing to me how many things Ethan was to so many different people. And how he could keep it all straight in his mind, too. You know, he was such a good friend. And the fact that he, you know, carried something around in his car for you, just waiting until the moment that he could hand it off to you. You know, that's just not something that you see in in a whole lot of people. No. You know? Actually, here they are. Um, yeah, I remember that album. Yeah. yeah. 
I remember when that came out too. Yeah. Very cool, Kurt. So it wasn't that I had anything specific on history. Not that we ever really talked about it that much, but I think he thought that book was, uh, I think he must have really liked it himself. And so he got a couple of copies of it and uh, gave it to people that he thought would like it. So, but um, I'm glad I still have it. Were there any other uh, like books or movies or music or anything like that that he turned you on to over the years? Um, <clears throat> I'm trying to remember. I, I think we would just, he had obviously seen a lot of music videos and things like that. So uh, with musician humor, you know, we could just quote a line from a, um, a music related video or something. And there was a lot of inside jokes. And um, if you've seen the, the Zeppelin movie, the song remains the same. There's a scene where a kid walks up to John Paul Jones and gives him a piece of paper. And Jones says, ah, two a dates. But this is tomorrow. Weird scene. And so uh one point with as is, you know, we got the uh like the tour dates from the next month announced to us, or not tour dates, but you know, gig dates. Um and so I, I walked up to him once and uh handed the the paper and he said, Ah, tour dates. And I immediately knew what he was referencing. <laughs> so we've both seen that movie a million times. So yeah. It was kind of funny. That is cool. Yeah. He was so well read and well versed yeah. in pop culture and, and avant garde, you know, culture as well. You know, he just could he could meld in with pretty much anybody on jazz or metal or country or right. funk or R and B or you know, science fiction, nonfiction, history. I mean, I was always just so impressed with his ability to retain all that stuff first and remember hundreds of songs. Yeah. Yeah, he had a lot of knowledge on a lot of different things and um, knew how to pull up um, tidbits and facts and things like that that were appropriate to the moment mm -hmm. and the person. I've always admired that because my I just get tongue-tied in those situations, you know? It's after the fact that the thought comes to me like, oh, I should have said this or that. It right. felt like Ethan always had it. Boom, ready to go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he was he was quick on his feet, that's for sure. He That he was. Yes, sir. Any other thoughts or anything else you'd like to share about Ethan? Well, I think maybe the, uh, the last thing I'll share was it's just kind of an image in my mind that uh, uh, when I was playing with Robert Street Band, uh, we were doing a, a big show at, uh, it's called the Cajun House. It's now called the Venue of Scottsdale, I think. It's one of our favorite rooms to play. It's a big dance floor and a nice stage. And uh, the stage is about three or four feet off the, the floor. And then at each corner of the stage, you've got the bass cabinet in front. And then the other speakers on top of that. Um, the band members can kind of walk out and stand on the speakers. And... Um, I think it was about 30 feet wide, something like that, the stage. And so at one point we we're kind of rocking down hard and the crowd was, was into it. And uh, it was a, it was a good moment. And Ethan jumped up on the, uh, the left hand bass cabinet and started playing with the, the bass held vertically, you know, a real rock and roll pose. And then the guitar player, John Guffa uh, jumped up on the other side and he started doing the same thing. And it was, 
very rock and roll with the guitar poses and all that stuff going down and the crowd loved it. And um, it's an image I'm always going to remember because it only happened one time. And uh, John Guffa actually just passed away a couple of weeks ago. Um, so they're both gone now. But um, I'm always going to remember that moment with the two of them playing. What a beautiful image in your mind to have of them. <laughs> yeah. Man. Yeah, definitely. Well, Kurt, it was a pleasure meeting you and just a joy to talk to you. And I appreciate you sharing all the memories and, and um, you know, the songs that you sent me. And um, I appreciate your time. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, my pleasure. And I look forward to hearing the rest of the episodes coming up. Sounds good, Kurt. Have a good night. Take care. Thanks. You too. that was a great conversation with Kurt. I enjoyed speaking to him and I appreciate him sharing memories of his time with Ethan in the As Is band and the time that they spent together after Ethan left the band. Please join me next week when I'll be speaking with Bill Dutcher, who is a very talented guitarist in the Phoenix, Arizona music scene. We have a great conversation and I hope you return next week to listen to it. I'd like to leave you today with uh, some music that Kurt shared with me. He actually shared several songs. Uh, the song I've chosen to play for you on this episode is called Homegrown, and it does feature uh, Ethan on the bass. I will also be posting another song called Balance on the Remembering Ethan podcast Facebook page, so make sure you check that out as well. I've saved a third song that he shared uh, for my conversation with Derek, so I'll be playing that after uh, we talk later on in the season. I hope everyone is well and that you had a great summer. Thanks for joining me today, and we'll see you soon. Well, we're in your home time, and we ain't homegrown. And if a minute ever comes that pass you by, there's a reason why your girl takes us home. If a minute ever comes